Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. I'm Tanai Jurgensen, and today Jonathan Miller and I sat down with Julian Robert Post Melby to discuss the secrets of the ice and learn more about glacier archaeology in Norway. Thanks uh, uh, for having me on. And uh, the Secrets of the Ice, it's a fun project we do. It's, it's our public outreach channel for the Glacial Archaeology Program, which is a uh, collaboration between the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo and uh, the Inland County Archaeologists. And for the past 10 years, uh, we've had a permanent program running where we collect finds that melt out of the ice in the high mountains of Norway every year. How did the project come about in terms of, like, was it a response to artifacts coming out of the ice and, and being discovered by people? Or was it more led by the climate change and going looking for artifacts that were coming out of the ice? Well, the project came about because of extensive melting in the high mountains uh, in southern Norway. And, uh, you know, local people were out uh, and about looking at stuff. Well, there are a lot of, like, almost call them hobby archaeologists that will document uh, hunting sites, you know, with uh, stone-built structures. And uh, Reidar Marstein, our local hero, he uh, he stumbled across a, uh, a shoe that melted out of the ice and some arrows, and, um, and that got the county archaeologist's attention. And um, they did several trips in 2006, and they saw there were hundreds of artifacts just melting out of the ice. And uh, that really got everybody's attention, you know, and really kick-started the intensive work on it. But there have been several finds that have melted out, like the earliest ones we have in Norway are from 1914. And there was a big cache of artifacts that melted out in the mid-40s, no, 30s. So we had, there were like a 200 finds from the last 100 years. And now we have hundreds every year just melting out of the ice. So it's just masses of amounts of uh, artifacts, well-preserved, organic, getting out of the ice. So can you talk a little bit about what glacial archaeology is? Is it similar to traditional archaeology where you're excavating out of trenches? Do you have predefined fields or or how does glacial archaeology work? In its broadest sense, glacial archaeology is um, about archaeology and arch- artifacts melting out of uh, ice in the mountains. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite different from, um, I, I would say, a normal archaeological uh, site uh, because there's there's no digging going on. Everything is just melting out of the ice and uh, there's no uh, stratigraphy. Everything just ends up on the ground as, as is. Uh, calling it in situ would be a stretch. The days are, are very different. It's a, lot, it's a lot more like a survey or, or a fieldwork slum or like a field walk pretty much where we got a, a line of people walking over and, and marking all the finds we can see and we collect them, but the um, finding them sites is a lot of is a time consuming work because they're remote. You have to walk in, and it can be quite far. So it's a project where we spend a lot of time wa- walking around, getting places, carrying stuff, uh, which makes for it's a, it's a great job. It's, uh, it's probably the best job you could have in archaeology. You must be very fit. Uh, very healthy. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I'm very. We are very fit at the end of September. And then, uh, yeah, you spend a lot of calories per artifact, I think, but uh, it's well worth it. And, uh, you know, getting, you know, having your job being wandering around in the high mountains of Norway, 
getting paid to do it is uh, it doesn't get much better than that very cool sounds like a dream fieldwork that normally takes place in the summer months is that correct yeah so uh, yeah fieldwork for the glacial archaeology pretty much takes place uh, at the end of the summer each year and that would be the same for um, canada the u.s the alps mongolia uh, because you have to get uh, in after the last year's uh, melt the snow melt and the and before the beginning of the next year's snow melt, which is pretty much like you got six weeks to get the jobs done. And uh, even though the artifacts aren't visible, they can be deteriorating beneath the snowpack after they get it out of the ice. So um, it's a it's a it's, it's a lot of pressure to get things done every year because we only have a few weeks every year, and we know that there are hundreds of artifacts everywhere because we have about fifty plus sites and. Um, maybe four or five weeks to do what we want to do each season, uh, which is um, there's a lot of hard choices and uh, a lot of walking and running around to get a, get things done. How do you choose the sites that you go to? Like, Do you have other means beyond just walking in and looking at them? Well, we do several things. We, they, we monitor the sites uh, uh, via satellite throughout the summer. So we bring, and uh, we have, uh, you know, you can see a lot of the sites from uh, far away, certain places, binoculars. So we get, we have like, um, we have a certain idea where uh, the melt is strongest because it's not uh, uniform across the whole uh, mountain ranges of uh, central southern Norway. You know, some sites are northerly and some sites are westerly exposed. You know, it will, it will vary from year to year. But mm-hmm. uh, usually when uh, there's a heavy melt going on. Everything is melting at once. And then we pretty much know that we have to prioritize the sites where we know that there are a lot of special objects. Some sites are, you know, we know they've been used more in the Stone Age, so we'll prioritize them to get, you know, incredibly well-preserved arrow shafts from the, the late, late Neolithic uh, and um, the uh, sites used for uh, mountain passes where you've got a lot of daily objects, you've got a lot of equipment for horses and people and it's it's a tough choice and sometimes we just have to um, send people out to check different sites and then we'll decide afterwards where we actually want to go sounds like a heartbreaking choice it is yeah and it's also you know when you finish up the site a site for the year you know you you're just leaving artifacts behind you can see them you just you know you just have to go and they oh, are so awful <laughs> but I, I think a lot of archaeologists can feel that from other projects too you know you have funding you can we can dig for 12 weeks and it's like we don't mind there's no more money or or you know we can't bring anything else in because it, it's better to just leave it out there than to let it rot in the museum without conservation yeah. and do you physically all the artifacts you find i was looking at your images and you know you're kind of laden down with stuff i know you can sometimes use other forms of transport and and ponies and things as well but like you know actually physically getting artifacts off off site must be another logistical aspect you know there's so many things to take into consideration yeah it's 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 a tough job you know because uh uh, all those artifacts have to be carried out from the mountains and there are lots of them are pretty big you know like the longest ones are in excess of three meters uh most of it's like yeah, under, under 120 centimeters, but uh, sometimes you have uh, very long objects and uh, unwieldy objects. This year we found a ski, complete ski, you know, with the bindings and everything. You have to pack that, you know, it, that one's just the ski is 180 centimeters long. And then you've got Incredible. Uh, 
uh, which was, and it's, you know, it's, it wasn't like waterlogged, but it was quite damp, you know, so it's quite heavy because it's so big. It's a heavy object, but it's also got like uh, other parts of it, like the wifey binding and the leather parts of the binding, you know, that you don't want much pressure on uh, when you pack it down. So it's, it's a quite, quite a job. And uh, I don't know, we have, uh, we have a term, you know, for heavy backpacks because we call them, uh, they're an error because they, we always get an error on the, on the luggage scale when we get back to the car. <laughs> we have to check it. So the, my luggage scale only goes to 40 kilos. So that's when we know we've had a, <laughs> a hard trek down is if you get an error on your backpack weight. At least you're walking down, right? Yeah. But, you know, walking up, you know, we have to carry all the food and tents and all that kind of stuff. So, but luckily we don't carry the, have to carry the consumables down. You know, backpack weights can be, if we don't have horses, they're quickly in, in excess of somewhere between 30 to 40 kilos. And that's a massive pain to carry up like 1,000, 1,500 meters of elevation gain. In, it's incredible. In a, a very uh, inconvenient landscape, you know, it's, it's a scree, it's bare rock. Yeah, it could be some moss or anything, but it's a, it's a high friction landscape and going is slow. And, but luckily, you know, you just take your time and then plod along. And after a few hours of, of heavy, heavy lifting, you'll be there. Yeah, I'm a masochist, but that still sounds like a dream job. Well, so- it is. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, so how big are your teams then? Like how, how many people do you go out onto a specific site with or how big is the entire team as well? It will vary a bit according to what we're doing. If we're like planning a, a, a big scale, you know, uh, a survey of a site where we know there are a lot of artifacts, we bring in a lot of equipment and then we'll often use horses just because we have to get in like food for 10 days, uh, a base camp tent, mess tent, uh, tents for everybody, you know, then we could be like five to eight people. But if we're doing like uh, more hit and run surveys, like check out sites or go collect artifacts that we know are there, uh, two or three people is also quite normal. So, you know, the, we're usually somewhere in the, between like, yeah, three and eight people. And uh, a lot of the time, maybe two or three people they go on each trip, you know, could be simultaneous trips going on. Very cool. What is it like camping in the field? What are conditions like for you guys? So, well, the conditions of camping in the field, you know, it's, uh, they're both, they're harsh, but beautiful. It's, uh, you know, people travel the world and spend thousands upon thousands, you know, of euros or pounds or dollars to experience these kind of things. I do it on my time off and then you get, you get paid to do it. You know, our campsites might be at, uh, like uh, somewhere between, um, 15 and 1800 meters above sea level. And in Norway, that's, uh, then you're like, you're quite far above the tree line. So it's, it's a really, um, a high exposed alpine mountain environment. You know, it's, you know, it will will snow in the summer. Uh, You get high winds that will really uh, toss you about. Uh, you know, we lose tents to the wind sometimes. We uh, sometimes just have to leave because the winds are so high. But most of the times it's, uh, it's a, it's pretty much a dream because, you know, you're, you're high up in the mountains. The views are beautiful. You're sitting there in a tent cooking some kind of what would probably be taste pretty awful at home. <laughs> up there you're just, oh, this tastes magnificent. I mean, you know, because you're just, you're, you're pretty much cold and hungry most of the time. And then, 
or not Muslim, but you, you, you know, food is one of our great comforts when you're up there because there's uh, you're working and you're eating and you're sleeping. And um, yeah. then, you know, food becomes some of the greatest experiences when you're up there. So uh, I quite enjoy it. I think yeah, because we're the same people, we're the same team year in, year out, you know, and uh, so we enjoy it. It's, uh, every year I think, oh, this, 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 this is too tough. I have to, I have to get back home. But and then, you know, a few, two, two days later, it's forgotten. You know, I want to go back. That's the... Yeah. That's the feeling. I think a lot of people that work in like special environments, especially like beautiful nature places, remote places, you, you get a different perspective on things. And then it's like I'm sitting there in like a full Gore-Tex equipment in a in a goose down sleeping bag and complaining about freezing. And then, you know, have all these artifacts from the Stone Age or something. Uh, uh, they They were tough people. That was, I was kind of wondering, like, if it gives you a, a, a very specific perspective on, well, also just like the changing land use in that zone. You know, previously you'd have people hunting there and um, transhumans, and then now you've got you guys there because of their presence doing that, yeah. and also kind of the, the juxtaposition of being there with modern equipment and having to survive there, but then in the past going through with animal skins and you know their 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 equipment, the ponies and wooden tools and stuff. It's it's so cool. You know, you get time to reflect on a lot of these kind of questions when you're up there on the mountains, you know, talking about it. And even today, in a certain mountain sites we we monitor, there's a wild reindeer now, you know, and there's a, like late August is the the hunting season for wild reindeer in Norway. So we kind of always try to uh, make sure we're not there during the, the first week of the hunt because that'll shoot anything that moves. <laughs> <It's> the... <laughs> Well, especially because we we collect, you know, uh, you know, prehistoric antler, you know. So you're walking around there in the uh, <laughs> in the fog, you know. You got huge antlers sticking out of your backpack. You don't want to, you don't want to be there the first weekend of the of the hunting season. So we we always try to like uh, the the sites with the uh, where the wild reindeer are. We try to get in before the, the hunting season, and then we'll move over to the uh, the parts where they have the the domesticated reindeer uh, for the hunting season. That's a question I have then. When you guys are finding all these finds, what brought these people up into these inhospitable passes? Um, was it reindeer hunting specifically or, you know, transhumans or what What have you guys found that, that these high up inhospitable landscapes are presenting to humans of the past? So in in the beginning of our, the our work with these objects when they were first melting out, you know, it was it was a, a huge amount of hunting equipment, and we know that uh, reindeer they will um, congregate on ice patches and snow and stuff on hot hot summer days, both to cool down and to avoid um, insects like bot flies will, will burrow beneath their skin and lay eggs, and, which are pretty much a pest uh, to them. Uh, so they'll they'll congregate there, and it's a very predictable uh, behavior by the reindeer. Obviously, this was quite easy for people in the prehistory to observe. And uh, you know, we our oldest objects on these sites are from uh, the late Mesolithic in Norway, so uh, yeah, about six thousand over in excess of six thousand years ago. And we like they've been continually hunting there until um, until yeah, we we find modern bullets there as well. So everybody knows that that in the middle of the summer period, the reindeer will go there and hang out. And they, if they're first, if they get up onto the snow, you know they'll be uh, they'll be loath to leave it. 
say, very predictable hunting site. So hunting sites is one thing. The really interesting part is also uh, that we kind of understood after a while is the high mountain passes. You know, I don't think it just wasn't really on our mind in the beginning of the of this uh, glacial archaeology program that that some of these sites would be mountain passes, which were actively used during prehistoric times in Norway to get from A to B. For example, one of our most prolific sites, Lenbrien, it's a it's a mountain pass that sits between the main valley and on the other side of the mountain pass. When you cross it and go down, you actually get to the summer farms. So they have been using the snow and ice to cross the mountains because it was a lot easier to walk. It is a lot easier if you're in this kind of mountain environment. If you got hard packed snow. You can just walk. It's uh, as if you know. It's it's like walking on snow. If you instead of trudging through huge rock landscapes, so it's uh, quick and easy to uh, to cross there, but dangerous. So when we first like started finding a lot of like special everyday objects and clothing, and like why, why is this here? Did they did they have a, like a hunting camp on the glacier or on the ice patch? What, what is this? And then you know it's like, but this is like equipment for like goats and you know this is a lot of transport equipment and why why is it what's like this is like textile production equipment it's like why is this up here that we found mm-hmm. to- toys you know like uh, children were up there it's like what is going on and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know it was like this like you, you we couldn't like comprehend like now it seems obvious to us that it was just a mountain pass but at the time it's like we just we couldn't wrap our minds about about it, and yeah, then, you'd be picturing um, guys like hunting reindeer and stuff, and yeah, and and bringing he, their kids and yeah, knitting, like, and things. Like, what's going? Yeah. yeah, so those are some of the really interesting sites up there, where you get a lot of uh, everyday of everything that you know you would have it at your farm or at your home. You know, it got lost on the high mountain passes as well, and of course, you find their pack animals, which uh, you know, crossing ice isn't necessarily the safest thing you can do. Uh, without crampons and equipment <laughs> so it's very fascinating you know they had a, a lot of uh, will and tenacity to use these high mountain landscapes uh, which I, you know it, it takes a bit of like experience to realize how willing and able they were to utilize the landscape you know they they were probably more up there than uh, we are today as a modern society you guys found a, a horse snowshoe isn't that correct yeah, so yeah, so in 2019, yeah, we found a one. We found two snow horseshoes. One of them was uh, intact, which is like a really fascinating object because it's it's big. You know, it's more, it's closer to like 50 centimeters in diameter, uh, with like a cross wifey in the middle. You know, so the horse hooves can can go into it, and uh, it was from the Roman era, so it's about wow. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was carbon dated this year, uh, so it's it's about one thousand seven hundred years old. It's one Amazing. of the oldest horse related finds we have up there, so it was uh, quite fascinating. So yeah, so you guys have found snowshoes and skis, so so definitely evidence of mountain passing. Yeah, and we also find you know we have found several dead horses. And which also, you know, and then we find part part of like the pack frames they used for the horses. And there's a lot of like equipment related to uh, getting over the mountains. And we find 
parts of you know that have belonged likely belonged to sleds you know to try to support animal feed across to like the summer farms because they needed you know it takes a time to get over the mountains so they had to bring food for the animals when they were driving them over the mountain passes do you know how long it would have taken them to make the the traverse you know obviously all this i know you've got lots of different sites but say the um, i know pronounce it wrong but the, the, the lenbring one that you were talking about uh, a lot a long day you know so f- i think they could probably make it in a full day and they that they wouldn't have to oh, right okay i think but you know it's hard you know, hard to say how that how they would organize it and how quickly they they could uh, move the animals but we know, like, for example, at Lembrain, there be... is a, a stone-built shelter at the top of the pass, you know, so they actually, it was room for, somebody has, at some time has built a shelter, a rock shelter there, if, so it, which is probably, you know, we can only guess because, you know, it's just rocks. But you know, we know that the the, the mountain pa- pass went out of use before uh, the historic record of the mountain passes in the, in Norway. So we know it's, like, older than the written sources, so... Um, so obviously they also had a need for a shelter at the top there that they all didn't always make it all the way. And there, there are several shelters between the valleys on each side as well, so they could stop along the way. So can you talk about the, the preservation of your finds? Um, are they, is it better than objects coming out of the soil? What is it, you know, does it vary, of course, like most archaeological finds or, or what is it like to, when they come out? So the preservation of the objects, that's, that's the real deal with the ice archaeology. It's, uh, they are perfectly preserved in many occasions. It's like a day hasn't passed. Uh, you can pick up uh, wooden objects and wave them around if you want to. You can, we could probably shoot the arrows. I've cut myself on several uh, arrowheads. You know, iron arrowheads aren't rusted at all. So that is the preser- preservation is the most interesting part about this. Because uh, take, for example, a Stone Age arrow. Uh, they could be like 90 centimeters long. There could be several types of... Uh, material involved like in a normal stone age site in norway for example only stone is preserved maybe some rare occasions you can get some uh, shells or you'll all get nuts of course and like other small microfossils but here at these sites you know everything is well preserved we have arrowhead we have the arrowheads of course but then you have like complete arrow shafts and all these arrow shafts you have uh, feathers used for fletching and these fletchings they're glued on with tar and then tied with either sinew or some other kind of string could be linen and um, and then um, on the front end you could have another type of sinew that keeps the the projectile point in place you know so you have uh you have a big object and or you have a complete object and normally you just find like five percent of it and now you have everything you know and you have to see the complexity of these objects that we'll find at other sites so the so the linen and the feathers and the glue it's all preserved yeah so yes. that's you know you, you hardly would get that anywhere else you know they're like fragments of feathers or like fossilized 
like or you know you you get feathers and textiles caught in corrosion or or you have waterlogged objects but waterlogged objects they're like mushy you know if you have a waterlogged arrow or shaft or something like that you know if you squeeze it you know you could just break it but these items or objects are they're naturally freeze-dried and they've been in an environment you know within the ice they could have been you know without oxygen oxygen for for millennia and they're all melting out now and there's so high above sea level so there's hardly any salts you know around in the environment so even if iron objects melt out uh, corrosion won't start to start so you have these uh, beautiful iron objects where all they have is like this weathered patina there's no corrosion it's just like just dark and and weathered but not corroding it's uh it's it's the reason why we do it you know it's because you have these amazing preservational conditions where you can find things that we don't find anywhere else pretty much you know anywhere else in the world apart from like exceedingly rare occasions like dry caves in deserts or something like that that's that's what kind of preservation conditions we're talking about perfect so has this changed our perspective on on like have have specialists come in and say like actually this totally revolutionizes how we think about this specific period or is it more subtle i think both yes and no so like if you could be an expert in a certain period of time you'll see like they had that uh they have that that's that changes not changes everything that was a bit that explains a lot for example the chronology for lithic stone arrowheads in the norwegian bronze age for example you know it's a it's been a tricky like something hasn't been adding up you know and uh, now we you know we find like tons of bronze age arrows you know we can directly carbon date them on the shaft but the kicker is the uh, projectile points are made of shell you know, so so we're standing there, you know, you're standing there 2,000 meters above sea level, you know, you can, and you're standing there like, well, that's something interesting. You're standing there with arrowheads made out of shell that are from uh, 1600 BC, you know, and that's like, okay, well, that explains why we can't get the lithic chronology to match because uh, that's not all, you know, they are the sum of all parts. And then you get into the uh, transition between the early and late Bronze Age in Norway, you know, 1200 BC. Okay, tons of uh, bone arrowhead points. You know, you can't find them at the other sites. You know, these these little things are what really are the changes in how how we understand things. Yeah. So it's 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 that we find materials that we haven't found in any archaeological context in Norway before, and they're just they're just there. For like, for example, the shells, or you can find shells, you know, at certain Stone Age sites or or rock shelters, but they're just, you know, they're just layers in a in a midden heap or something. You couldn't see if anything was an artifact or just refuse from the dwelling site. But here, you know, you get completely new perspectives on certain material categories, and they're so well preserved that we can analyze them. You know, we got the amount of material we have means that we can actually use. Uh, methods that you know otherwise we wouldn't want to sacrifice the small amount we have preserved of this from a certain time time period on a destructive analysis method like uh, gas chromatography mass spectrometry that's a that's a mouthful you know that, those kind of that you, you if you only have a gram of it you don't want to sacrifice 
that gram for that water analysis. But here we can do that. You know, we had a uh, uh, we found like a, this uh, we found a box with a lid on it a couple of years ago, and you could like see there was something inside it. And uh, you know, our, our followers uh, on Secrets of the Ice, you know, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, you know, people were wild like, "What's in the box?" <laughs> I, I was like, yeah. I was, I was so excited. I was, I was... <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know, but there was a lot of material. You know, it's no problem. Okay, we can we can do the analysis. We can see what's in the box. And uh, for people that follow us, you probably know. You know, it was beeswax, a medieval beeswax. So it's just, we've just got this box of beeswax. Like, where do you find that otherwise? It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, so it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing. As well as you know, some people might have seen we found this dog that had a collar on it the, with a leash, and we were like, you're just standing there. It's like, did they have leashes on their dogs? Like, of course they did. Why didn't we think about this? And also, they had the, so the the collar was made out of like whitey binding, which is like twisted branches of whitey. And then the leash was made of uh, textile fibers, you know, oh. a plant fiber. So like could be linen, like something like that. So you have these instances that you're just standing there. It's like, they made what out of this? But we also have the amount of material preserved that we can actually sacrifice a few grams of it to analyze the material instead of just uh, speculating about it. Like, mm. for example, adhesives in the Stone Age, we have the amount now that we we analyze it like from several different objects through several hundred years, you know, and then it's consistent. So you can actually use it for something interesting in a cultural historical discussion about the past instead of just having one reference point of, of data. Now we have like continuous data on new types of materials. That's so exciting. Could I, could I ask a question about the arrowheads? You know, in terms of like, I know the range, or I, I don't know, but I, I've, I've seen a bit of the range. You have like hardened wooden ones and you have the shell, you have stone and then uh, metal ones and being able to date the actual wood part and put them into like a, a kind of sequence and say, you know, this is the actual, like presumably with stone tools, you'd never normally be able to say which was earlier. It's simply, here's a stone arrowhead, here's another one. And these ones are different. Maybe they were for hunting different things or whatever. But now you could say, oh, do you know, well, this is older than that one and, and sequence them. And then is there a stylistic development that you can assess beyond what you might have been able to interpret both the yes and no you know we have very good data from you know the stratigraphy and carbon dating of layers in like both from all the way from the stone age until a medieval period but there's still just you know there are objects found in layers you know and they maybe done it a few thousand times you get pretty sure about certain stuff but for example the transition from the viking period to the medieval period in norway you know viking age you got grave mounds you got a mass of uh, objects going into these graves and you know you've got quick stylistic changes so, you know the typological dating of the objects are very good and then you come to the medieval period in norway it becomes a, a, a christian uh, society so the graves completely changed you know you don't have grave goods anymore so for example we knew a lot lot less about the chronology of the hunting equipment from you know the year 1000 to modern era the introduction of guns you know there was like this it's kind of strange that we knew a lot more about before the older parts that we knew about, like in medieval history in Norway. But now we have, you know, we've carbon dated it, lots of it. The introduction of crossbow in Norway was a lot different than we thought, uh, or at least the, the widespread adaption of its use, you know, because before, you know, was based on either law texts or some king's armorer, armory or something, you know, very specific kind of like high royal society place, you know, that's 
not necessarily representative of how equipment was used in the rest of society. So even from the year 1000 to what are you like 1480, you know, we, we learned a lot. So then I have to ask, have you guys found any ice mummies? Oh, we wish. <laughs> uh, we haven't found any like mummified remains of humans, unfortunately, or fortunately for the people that didn't die. Though. You know, maybe maybe one day, you know, the hope is always there. Uh, we find a lot of equipment that is like, if you lost this, you're probably found like we have a complete pair of skis, you know, from the year 700. Okay, so if you lost both your skis on the top of a mountain in the winter time, you're not necessarily dead but you're <laughs> you're in trouble you know because you have to get you have to get down there before you die of a hypothermia and if you lose both your skis it was probably pretty bad weather too so you know there's situations like that it's like chances are that there's something here is is quite big but the mountain environment you know is is different you know from the alps it's more it's a bit more humid chances are that's part of like the flesh and stuff was starting to decomposing a little bit before it got really frozen is always is is there you know so but we find mummified remains of of animals that have uh, died like birds and smaller lemmings and that kind of stuff so then outside of an ice mummy what would you most like to find what's your what's on your glacial archaeology wish list <laughs> I don't know. It's it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes it feels harder to dream bigger than what we have found. Uh, you know, apart from an ice mummy, which is like just like the, the, the proper jackpot. But uh, we found like um, finding something like a complete sled. You know, we we found or well, we have found sleds. You know, from but they're from been from the like seventeenth uh, or sixteenth century, which isn't that old. But finding something really old that would be like you know, like, or, like that. The Osberg ship sled, but like up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah something like that. That would be like yeah, uh, really. Um, that that's one of my. But it's hard to like dream beyond things we've found. You know, like if you'd asked me ten years ago, I'd probably say what well, some of the stuff we found. You know, like these children toys. You know, like two thousand meters above sea level and on a mountain pass in the ice. Uh, complete skis. You know, bows from the Bronze Age, Mesolithic arrows. Uh, shoes, you know, shoes from the Bronze Age, shoes from the Viking Age, shoes from the Roman period. You know, we found like a ring made out of ivory. It's like, what? What's it doing up here? You know, you have all these things that you know. I don't think we could imagine finding them, but we did find them. And you know, dreaming beyond that would be like, yeah, it would be fun to like find a complete quiver of arrows. You know, somebody lost their quiver, not just. A few hours, you know, just more of what we find. We'll be happy. Yeah. So the 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 mummy would be the the be all. Kind of speaking about more to come. Moving into the the very bitter, much more bitter than sweet topic of climate change and, and losing our glaciers and ice patches. What is Norway expecting to see in the coming years? Are you expecting this project to continue because of climate change? What what is that looking like for you guys? It's looking. It's very, it's like, it's a grim prospect, you know, they expect all glaciers in Norway to be gone by this century. So that, you know, the end of my lifetime, there might not be any glaciers left in Norway. And that means, you know, we see, you know, year by year, there's older and older and older objects. We know that the ice probably formed at the late Holocene uh, climate optimum. And, uh, you know, that's like 6,700 years uh, ago, maybe a bit more. And, uh, you know, we, we we continually see older objects coming out of sites 
where we have only collected Iron Age objects before. Now it's suddenly Bronze Age, and there's like a lot of ice left in the okay, this the Stone Age is coming, which is pretty sad because you know you have this it's this sinking feeling of losing something because you're standing there and you can see the ice is melting, and you can see the objects hanging out of the ice. And we know we can't collect everything. We we don't have time. There's not not enough people. There's not enough money. There's not enough. There's not enough of anything. And uh, we don't know what we're missing because we have you know over fifty sites that we have to try to monitor, and we can only be at a few sites every year. And uh, we don't know what we're missing out on. And this is not just Norway and and not our just our area. This is like this is a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, this is, you know, it's everywhere there's high mountain ice and uh, it's heartbreaking. And, uh, and we're lucky to have funding and we've had funding for many years. It's the same as like in the Yukon, they've had fun. But all these areas without funding, they're just scraping by on people's sacrifice and hard work. But it's um, it's not good. It's not good at all. Is there anything that can be done? <laughs> uh, it doesn't. And any hope. Any yeah, hope. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, if it go, if it slows, I don't know if there's a, much hope, but if things slow down, you know, people around the world might have a chance to actually keep up with what's going. And it's not just, you know, the artifacts and the ice, you know, the ice is like a storage for, for natural history as well, both through whatever is like captured within the ice in forms of, uh, of layers of air and, um, and ash and all that kind of stuff but it also you know animal remains from like thousands and thousands of years we can see you know we've got colleagues you know they're like hey we can we can see what a bird ate in the stone age you know it's not necessarily always going to be useful to know but it certainly is useful to know what was available it's that total amount of things you're losing you know the landscape itself doesn't really care you know if the glaciers are gone it's like we either care and as in society should care, like the ice disappearing from these areas, it has a lot to say, you know, for, for a modern way of life, because the ice, you know, it catches, you know, we get, you get, you get this delay of when the snow melt is and that used for irrigation and farming, you know, so you have this whole society based on glaciers being present uh, for, for, as a water resource, a lot of stuff that we hope we, if it slows down, it'll be better for everyone. Sorry to bring up the, the grim part. <laughs> So, but it's it's an important part, and and if it if it wasn't if it wasn't for this sense of urgency, you know, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. It's because you know the people have decided. You know, we get our funding from the government and the county council and the museum and the university. You know, and if if it wasn't a sense of urgency, this wouldn't have been like a a program. But we have the funding because it's it's a problem. One thing you you'd mentioned about. Um... Of local people who were you know, hiking and, and reporting finds that they've made. Um, do you have like a kind of established, like, is there a hotline to phone or do they just know you guys? I mean, obviously you've, you've had a long, long running relationships. I suppose it's just them kind of saying, oh, yeah, I found something else. And it would be a lot of the same people doing the same stuff. But, you know, is there, you know, like the Portal Antiquity Scheme, is there something similar for, for ice finds in Norway? Where... Well, in Norway, it's, well, they know us, you know, and that's pretty personal now. But yeah. and, and anyway, in Norway, we have the county archaeologists that are the, you know, they will get, people will tell them that they found something. You know, that's their, that's one of the reasons they exist is, you know, to be this, uh, regional cultural heritage management place, you know. So that, that's like the, uh, 
a proper channel for that that kind of fight. And um, and a lot of these fight, you know, we have very active people, and almost like right in the mid middle of all these sites in the valleys and mountains. You know, we have the Norwegian Mountain Center, which is both like a museum. It's the public outreach areas for many of the national parks. You know, it's like it's it's become a hub for our work in the area and. Um, you know, I'm here uh, talking today. You know, I work at the Museum of Cultural History, but most of the people working on this, on this projects and working with the Secrets of the Ice, they work at the County Archaeologists for Inlanda, and they live much closer, you know, to these sites, and they live in this area. So they're, it's very much a local project where, you know, the archaeologists that live and work there to normal are the ones that are doing most of the work, doing the heavy lifting, and the local people are, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very, uh, it's a, that's a good thing a very good thing that it's a, a very strong local ownership to uh, these sites and, and objects it's brilliant i'm sure it would be their ancestors that would have been going back and forth as well you know it'd be i'd, I'd imagine it'd be a lot of continuity yeah especially you know yeah late iron age you know viking period medieval period you know that's probably the relatives of, of, of some you know distant ancestors you know for sure and when you were saying about like looking at satellite imagery to see is it can you tell at a glance when a, a, an ice patch is kind of ripe, if you like, for for you know, like is it something you would yeah. just look at from, from yeah, a satellite maybe. image? I presume there must be something you can tell. Yeah, you know, normally you know, snow, you know, it's white, and um, you know, but these uh, glaciers, but especially these ice patches, they'll accumulate, you know, uh, wind blown de debris through thousands of years. So when they are and reindeer dung, so when they're melting heavily. Snow has disappeared and the ice is exposed. So instead of being like white on uh, on satellite imagery, there'll be like a, a dark, a bluish hue, and there'll be like there'll be strata laminations of like dung and, and organic debris. So there'll be like these black striations across it. So you can like you, you just call it dirty snow. You know you can mm. see you can see old ice uh, at a glance. This is easy. You know if you know what if you've seen it once you know you know what you you know what it looks like it's very yeah. it's very distinctive what a, a heavily melted ice patch looks like that's cool Julia we'll, we'll wrap up then and let you go on with your day I think it's lunchtime for you um <laughs> so where where can we learn more about the secrets of the ice project is there a website um or social media that people can follow well as we like already mentioned we start secrets of the ice it's our public outreach you know we got a website secretsoftheice.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think that's all of them. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure to post the handles. So uh, yeah, and uh, you guys uh, were talking warmly about Twitter earlier. So and Instagram is uh, a, lot of, a lot of nice pictures. And uh, if you're really interested, you know, that's uh, there's a lot of uh, beautiful things to see. And if, if you don't like archaeology, there's always the nature in the background. Very true. And then are any of these finds, are they up in the museum yet in Oslo? Are they planning to go up in the, in the museum? Uh, a lot of the uh, the objects, they're uh, on exhibition at the Norwegian Mountain Center, which is in Lom, uh, which is, you know, is situated in the middle of all these uh, sites. So there's a big archaeology uh, exhibition there, you know, about, you know, crossing the ice, hunting the ice. And it's part of a bigger exhibition about, you know, mountains in Norway it's it's a very it's a very nice exhibition and uh, it's well visited and it's it's worth the trip you know the uh, 
the absolute madmen, you know, they are. They built a ice tunnel in one of the sites where you could actually get to with a car. So there's a 70 meter deep or long tunnel that just burrows into the ice. Uh, and there they've, you know, they melted like uh, replicas of archaeological finds into the ice. And they had like normal, and there's like a famous ice sculpture. They've like made scenes from the Norse mythology in ice so you can wander through the roots of uh, Yggdrasil, the, the world tree. And uh, there's like a, you know, they built a slide in the ice so you can like on the Midgash Ormen, you know, the, the world serpent. And there's like a huge globe in the middle. And in every, all of this has, you know, lighting into it. it it's, 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 it's completely otherworldly. And they're absolute lunatics that, you know, they, they dreamt up this <laughs> scheme, you know, this... So yeah, because there's there's one one of our sites is called Yuvfonde. You know, and there's um, uh, you know we have hundreds of archaeological finds there. You know, from the Iron Age and there's a few Bronze Age stuff. And they're like, okay, but what if we dig a tunnel and then we'll make an exhibition inside the ice? Because this is it's the highest road in uh, in northern in like northern Europe that crosses up there. So you can actually drive up to like seventeen hundred meters above above sea level. And then, uh, you know, there are guided tours and uh, you can get, actually get inside one of these, on the inside of one of these ice patches and, and learn about these finds and see things in the ice and, and walk, walk the site and experience it. It's, um, I think I saw a photo away. of that and I, I didn't know what it was that I was looking at. It was people walking through an ice tunnel and there were presentation boxes on the wall that looked like they were made of ice as well with artifacts yeah. in it. it yeah, so that's incredible. That's an actual ice tunnel that's not like some museum exhibition built up that's they built they pretty much built a museum inside an ice patch that's incredible it sounds like we need to do a company field trip yeah, I warmly recommend it and there, there's a there's a there's a mountain lodge right close by you know so you can spend the night and get a three-course dinner and drink some beers and this is also one of the main uh, uh staging uh, not state one of the main like access points to Gullapigi, which is the highest mountain in Norway, in Northern Europe, I guess, uh, you know, it's just a day's walk up, up the mountain, across the glacier and climb a mountain and you can see the, see the world. That's brilliant. So then the project's expected to continue for a couple more years. Is that correct? Hopefully, you know, there's no set date uh, for when this ends, you know, because it's a program, it's a program and uh, hopefully we can continue as long as we have to. So we get some, uh, we get some funding from the Norwegian state. Every year as a baseline, and uh, but the uh, the Inland County Council they uh, spend a lot of money on it, and then here at the Museum of Cultural History we also spend some money, you know. So it's it's a collaboration, and then the the director for cultural heritage will also pitch in when needed here. So it's uh, everybody's like giving some money, and uh, it's working out, and hopefully we can, you know, we found this, you know, every time we find something amazing like ski we found this year it's like okay we'll probably get money next year you know so it's always this like um it's it's that's not like the fun part but you know we have to if we don't we don't find something amazing you know politicians might figure out wow this is this is enough but as long as you know people are enthusiastic we keep finding things and and uh it gets you know, research is done, exhibitions are made, everything is like rolling. It's it's a, it's a good feeling. Well, you're very popular in Ireland, I'll tell you guys. So. <laughs> well, uh, well, Julian, talk for that. It's not good enough, dog. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much. It was so yeah. lovely to chat with you. And um, yeah, we're all very excited to to see the project continuing and um, the finds are just incredible. And it's, yeah, it's so important to archaeology as a discipline. So yeah. we're, we're so appreciative of you guys. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your other episodes as well.